a pleasant Sabbath. And it's nice to be back at Patna today. And I'm sad to say that this is probably the last time we will be at Patna. We are leaving back for the United States at the end of this month. And so we're glad that we can be with you one more Sabbath. And I pray that the message that we have today that the Lord has in store for us will remind us of where we are all headed. Because this earth is a temporary home wherever we live. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, I pray that you would be with us this morning in a special way as we open up your word. May you speak through me in a special way. May Christ be lifted up. May the message lift up Jesus Christ. May the messenger be lost sight of, but may only Jesus be seen. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. The title for today's message is The Fit Man in the Great Controversy. Do you want to be the fit man? I want to start off by turning to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15. This chapter is sometimes overlooked as we study the three angels' messages in Revelation 14, and we study the loud cry of Revelation 18, where an angel comes down from heaven and the earth is lightened with its glory. But Revelation chapter 15 has some very important instruction for us living in the last days. And it immediately follows the three angels' messages and the harvest of chapter 14. Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, we read, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Do you realize that after the three angels' messages have done their work, there is going to come a time where the wrath of God will do its appointed work in the outpouring of the seven last plagues? There will not be a time of mercy that will last forever. There is coming a time where everyone will have made his or her choice for good or for evil. The three angels' messages will have been proclaimed with power. And at that point, God will say, now it is time for the seven angels to pour out the seven last plagues. Now, Revelation 15, it seems like you're about to get warmed up and you're about to just see the seven last plagues poured out, but then we have to wait till chapter 16 to see them poured out. Notice what happens next. Verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over the image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. Do you realize that it is God's purpose through the proclamation of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 that each one of us would have that experience of having gotten the victory over the beast and over the mark and over the number of his name so that we can stand on the sea of glass? God doesn't want to pour out the seven last plagues on us. That's not his purpose. He wants us to be among those who stand on the sea of glass, having gained the victory over the beast, over the image, and over his mark. Notice what God's last day people experience as they stand on the sea of glass. Verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. I want to be among those who sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that a little bit more at the end of this message. Notice what they sing specifically in this message. Verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. Do you see the three angels' messages in here? Who shall not fear thee, O God? Fear God and give glory to him. 
who shall not glorify thy name. All your judgments are made manifest. We fear God. We give glory to him in the hour of his judgment. And his judgments are made manifest through the outpouring of the seven last plagues. This is after the plagues have been poured out. They're standing on the sea of glass. This earth has been deserted. The plagues have already poured out. And God's people are saying, we have gained the victory and your judgments have been made manifest. You were righteous to pour out your plagues. Continuing on, verse 5. And after that I looked... And behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. This is speaking of the sanctuary in heaven. And what John the Revelator sees, he sees that the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony was opened in heaven. Every time in the book of Revelation that the sanctuary is mentioned, something very key, something very significant is happening apocalyptically and prophetically. And when you look through the book of Revelation, when you see Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is walking in the midst of the candlesticks in the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. In Revelation chapter 4, a door is open in heaven. John is taken in vision into the holy place of the heavenly sanctuary where he sees the throne of God and across from the throne are seven lamps of fire that are burning. Again, the seven golden candlesticks. And then in Revelation chapter 8, when the seven trumpets are about to sound, John the Revelator again sees an angel who has... A, the censer in his hand standing before the altar of incense again in the holy place. And then in Revelation 11 verse 19, it says the temple of God was opened in heaven and there was seen in his temple the ark of his testament. And that is describing when the most holy place was opened at the end of the 2,300-day prophecy in 1844. In Revelation chapter 15, something of even greater significance is taking place. John looks up again into heaven and he sees the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven being opened. And notice what happens as the temple of God is open in heaven. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure and white linen, and having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials, full of the wrath of God, who liveth forever and ever. Now notice what happens to the temple of God in heaven when it is open. Verse 8. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. No man was able to enter in to the temple in heaven while the seven last plagues were being poured out because there is smoke from the glory of the Lord that is filling the temple in heaven. Now let me ask you something. Who is in the temple in heaven? Obviously, Scripture speaks of God being in his holy temple. Also, when you study Scripture in the book of Hebrews, we see Jesus who was fully God and also fully man. Yeah. Enter into heaven, into the sanctuary, into the temple of God to be seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Meaning, when it says no man was able to enter into the temple, that means that Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, has come out. Because you see, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. 
when he was here on this earth, he was our Messiah and he was a prophet. But when he went to heaven, he became our great high priest, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But do you realize Jesus is not going to be high priest seated at the right hand of the throne of God forever? There is a day that is coming when the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven will be open and Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords is coming out of that temple. He's not staying there forever. Let's not live as if we have another hundred years before Jesus is coming out. Because a day is coming when the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven will be open and the temple will be filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And the question is, why is it that smoke filled the temple of God? I want to take you to a passage in the Old Testament that will give us a greater understanding of what is taking place here. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. And here we read. And this is speaking of the dedication of the temple that Solomon built. Now, people call it Solomon's temple. This was God's temple, okay? 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 6 through 11. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, into the oracle of the house, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubims. For the cherubims spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubims covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves, that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without, and there they are unto this day. Verse 9. There was nothing in the ark save the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now notice verses 10 and 11. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Now, do you see the connection from 1 Kings 8 with what we saw in Revelation 15? In 1 Kings chapter 8, the priests enter into the most holy place to place the Ark of the Covenant with the law of God in that most holy place. This work typically took place where they would go into the most holy place. That was always done on the Day of Atonement. Now, this was a special service with the dedication of the temple. But they were in the most holy place. They completed the work that the high priest must do in the most holy place. Then they came back out through the holy place. And when they came out of the holy place into the outer courtyard, that is when smoke filled the temple with the glory of the Lord. And what Revelation 15 is telling us is that Jesus, our great high priest, according to Revelation 11:19, has been in the most holy place as our high priest on the anti-typical day of atonement, doing a special work of cleansing in the sanctuary. But he's not going to stay in the most holy place forever, just as the priests in the Old Testament did not stay in the most holy place forever. When their work was finished on the day of atonement, they came out. And the passage in 1 Kings chapter 8 tells us that when the work in the most holy place was finished, smoke from the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Revelation 15 then tells us that the work of Christ as our great high priest in the most holy place of doing a work of cleansing has come to its completion. Jesus is coming out, not as our priest, but as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, let me mention something of great significance here. When the high priest came out 
from the most holy place through the holy place and into the courtyard, he had one final work to do on the Day of Atonement. And that's what we read for our scripture reading today. And this is Leviticus chapter 16, verses 21 and 22. This was the last work that the high priest would do. And I can assure you that just as the high priest in the Old Testament did this work, so Jesus, our great high priest, will do this work as he finishes up his high priestly ministry. Leviticus 16, verses 21 and 22. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now here's what's happened. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest takes the blood of the lamb that has been slain. Jesus is the high priest. He takes his own blood as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And with that blood, he cleanses the sanctuary and blots out the sins of his people. But he doesn't finish with our sins at that moment. He then takes those sins that have been blotted out and he says, there has to be a scapegoat to take these sins away forever. And that scapegoat in the anti-typical day of atonement is Satan. And Jesus is our high priest. He's going to come to Satan and he's going to say to Satan, Satan, you thought that you had my people under your hand. You thought because you had gotten them to fall into sin that they were yours forever. But I'm here to tell you that because of my blood, I have blotted out their sins and those sins are not accounted to their record anymore. And it is your fault that they ever sinned in the first place. So therefore, you get to bear their sins now. And Jesus then places the sins on the head of the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is then to be led away. Now, Leviticus 16, verse 21 tells us who is going to lead this scapegoat away. Who does it say is going to lead the scapegoat away? It says a fit man. Now, let's just think about this. In the Old Testament service, they chose someone, a man, who was physically and emotionally and spiritually fit. Someone who wouldn't be afraid of what dangers might be out there as he led the scapegoat away. Someone who was physically up to the task. And someone who was spiritual and fit and close to God. In other words, they didn't just haphazardly, at the end of the Day of Atonement, choose someone that ate food all the time in between meals and was 200 pounds overweight and wasn't making any attempt to get on a healthy diet plan. You hear what I'm saying? Now, as a physician, I can tell you, I understand some people have genetic or genes in their, that they inherit that makes it harder to be fit compared to other people. And if that's the way it is for some of us, then that means we should try all the harder to eat a healthy diet. But obviously, they chose someone who was physically fit, someone who lived by the health message. And you realize that the health message, which is part of the medical missionary work, is the right arm of the third angel's message. So in other words, you wouldn't choose a man to lead a scapegoat out if he didn't have a right arm. You wouldn't choose a one-handed man to take the goat away. You would choose someone who had two healthy, functional arms and hands to lead that goat away. Someone who has a strong right arm. Obviously, as well, someone who is strong mentally and spiritually. Someone that isn't going to get 100 yards past the camp and they see a snake go crawling by and they'll say, I'm not sure that God's led me to do this job. Trials have come, I quit, I'm done. I can't handle this. 
the fit man was a representation physically, mentally, and spiritually of what God's people should be. And someone who was fit physically, spiritually, and mentally was chosen to lead the scapegoat away. And I'm going to tell you right now that in the last days, God has designed that he shall have a fit people to lead the scapegoat away when Jesus, the high priest, comes out of the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven to lay the sins of God's people onto the head of Satan. God has a special work for us to do in the last days. Now let me read to you an absolutely fascinating statement from the pen of Ellen White. This is from Spalding and McGann Collection, page two. You're going to want to listen to this. If you're falling asleep right now, now is the time to wake up, okay? This is not the time to be asleep. It might keep you from being fit, okay? Here, listen carefully to this statement. Then I saw that Jesus' work in the sanctuary will soon be finished. And after his work there is finished, he will come to the door of the first apartment and confess the sins of Israel upon the head of the scapegoat. That's Satan. Then he will put on the garments of vengeance. And you realize that's strange to hear under inspiration that Jesus will put on the garments of vengeance. It's his strange act, but God is a God of mercy and justice. Continuing on, then the plagues will come upon the wicked and they do not come till Jesus puts on that garment. So notice, it's the direct work of what Jesus does by putting on the garments of vengeance that then leads to the plagues being poured out. And he takes his place upon the great white cloud. Now here's the key point. This is why I'm reading this quote. Then while the plagues are falling, the scapegoat is being led away. Okay? In scripture, who led the scapegoat away? It was the fit man. Now notice what she says about Satan. He makes a mighty struggle to escape, but he is held fast by the hand that leads him. Amen. You better have a fit hand that's holding that scapegoat. Amen? Now notice this. If he should affect his escape, Israel would lose their lives. I saw that it would take time to lead away the scapegoat into the land of forgetfulness after the sins were put on his head. So Ellen White says that when the seven last plagues are falling, that is when Satan is being led away as the scapegoat by the fit man in the last days. Now let me ask you something. At what time prophetically are the plagues falling? It's after Jesus has come out of the out of the sanctuary, and that means that probation has closed. And if you study last day events, you will understand that when probation closes, that is when God's people enter into the time known as Jacob's time of trouble. So what we're talking about at the end here is a spiritual battle. You're not going to have a literal goat that requires a human being to literally take a human hand and lead a literal goat physically out into some wilderness. That's not what it's talking about here. This is a spiritual battle. And God needs to have people who are physically, mentally, and spiritually fit to face this final battle with the scapegoat while the plagues are falling. And the question is, what kind of a battle are God's last day people going through while the plagues are falling, while they go through Jacob's time of trouble? Let me read to you Great Controversy, page 618. Satan had accused Jacob before the angels of God, claiming the right to destroy him because of his sin. 
He had moved upon Esau to march against him, and during the patriarch's long night of wrestling, Satan endeavored to force upon him a sense of his guilt in order to discourage him and break his hold upon God. Jacob was driven almost to despair, but he knew that without help from heaven he must perish. He had sincerely repented of his great sin, and he appealed to the mercy of God. He would not be turned from his purpose, but held fast the angel and urged his petition with earnest, agonizing cries until he prevailed. Here's what's happening in the time of trouble. A death decree is declared against God's people just as Esau was making a death march against Jacob. And God's people will feel as if the whole world is against them because they really are and they will see no way out. And at this point in time, they are the fit man leading Satan away as the scapegoat and Satan is mightily trying to escape and the way he's trying to escape he's coming to God's people and he's saying God really hasn't forgiven you probation has closed and there is still sin against your name in the record books of heaven you can't trust in God if God was your on your side you wouldn't have the whole world against you and I'm so powerful that we are gonna wipe you off the face of the earth you can't trust in God anymore and God's people who are fit physically, mentally, and spiritually, they, just like Jacob, are going to prevail through earnest, agonizing cries until the final victory is gained. Satan will be earnestly trying to get Israel to say, I'm not sure if we can trust in God anymore. And yet God's people will demonstrate to Satan and the onlooking universe that under the most horrible of circumstances, under the most trying of circumstances, where it would seem as if faith would not be able to come through. God will have a fit group of people who will defeat the devil through the power of Jesus Christ. And that is what will lead Satan into the land of forgetfulness known as the wilderness of this earth for 1,000 years where he will have nothing to do. Do you see why God is waiting for a group of people who will perfectly reproduce his character before he comes? What would happen if Jesus were to come and we didn't have his character? you would hit that time of trouble and Satan would quickly be able to show that you are not fit. That is why it is so important that we follow all of the counsel that God has given to us as a people for these last days. If you want to understand perhaps why in your battles with the devil he seems to win so often, could it be that you are knowingly disregarding clear counsel that God has given to us. For example, God has made it clear to us through the pen of inspiration that the closer we come to the second coming of Jesus Christ, God's people will put away the eating of flesh foods because it weakens our bodies. It weakens our minds. We don't think as clearly. And if we don't think as clearly, we don't hear God's Spirit speaking to us so that when he says, this is the way, walk ye in it, we have impure foods floating around in our blood that cloud our minds so that we don't discern the Spirit of God's voice. And God is saying, I need a fit group of people who are mature physically, mentally, and spiritually so that when the final test comes, they will be able to fight off the wiles of Satan through my power. But if you're not surrendering and submitting your life to the plain statements of Christ now, how will you be able to fight off the power of Satan? The, the, the key point is this. When we learn to follow the counsel of Jesus here, right now, and as we make choices to continually surrender to him, he can take us further and further in our Christian experience. Because 
when you look at the parable, for example, of the, of the plant, that's first the blade, then the ear, and then the full corn in the ear, it is perfect at every stage of development. But only until you have the full corn in the ear is it ripe and ready to be eaten. For example, my one-year-old daughter. I find her to be perfect at the stage she's at right now. But if she was still saying two or three words and eating breast milk and barely stumbling around five years from now, something would have gone wrong in her development. Why is it then, as Christians, we so often say, all I need to do is accept Jesus as my Savior, and then I'm not going to study anymore, I'm not going to learn anymore, I'm just going to assume that Jesus will accept me as I am, even though I never change, even though I never show any interest in studying the Bible deeper and of looking at what the counsel is for our time. I'll just stay where I am, and Jesus will take me as I am. But the scripture teaches that Jesus, he takes us as we are, but he transforms us into his image. He didn't come to save us in our sins, but from our sins. And at the end of time, yes, salvation is by grace through faith, but God must have a mature group of people to go through the final crisis. He can't have a group of people who are satisfied by saying, well, I accepted Jesus as my Savior, and that's all I need, and I stopped right there. I didn't study the sanctuary message. I didn't study the three angels' messages. I didn't study the health message. I didn't study the, the benevolent work of going out and helping the poor, the medical missionary work, all of those things. I just decided to stay as a baby Christian. And the fit man who led the scapegoat into the wilderness clearly was not a baby Christian. He was a man who was very mature, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Now let me go back to Revelation 15 as we come to the last few minutes of our sermon for this morning. Revelation 15, we read verses 2 through 4, which describes God's last day people, the 144,000, for a very special reason. Revelation 15 shows that the seven last plagues are going to be poured out when Jesus comes out of the most holy place of the sanctuary in heaven. And he puts the sins of God's people onto the head of the scapegoat. And Revelation 15 shows us that he can do that because he has a group of people who have gotten the victory over the beast and over the image and over the mark and over the number of his name. This is the group of people known as the 144,000. They are the last day fit man to lead Satan into the wilderness. And they have a special experience that qualifies them to be that fit man. And we see that in verses 3 and 4. Notice what it says. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. And the song of the Lamb saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made manifest. Notice, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Why do you sing a song? Why did David write so many different songs that are recorded in the book of Psalms? It demonstrates or describes the experience of the person who is singing the song. And God's last day, 144,000 people, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb because they had the experience of Moses and of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And that qualifies them to be the fit man to lead Satan the scapegoat into the wilderness. Do you want to be part of God's last day people? Do you want to sing the song of Moses? Do you want to sing the, the song of the Lamb? Now notice, I got a little excited there, sorry. 
What was the experience of Moses? And what was the experience of the Lamb that would cause God's last day people to sing their song? You know, the song of Moses is found in Exodus chapter 15. And it describes the deliverance of God's people as they had been boxed in. The Egyptian army was behind them. The Red Sea was in front of them. And there was no way out. They were facing certain death. And miraculously, God parted the Red Sea. And they passed through on dry land to the other side and were delivered. And in like manner, God's last day people who have faced the, the death decree keep their trust and faith in God and will pass through to the other side and will be delivered from the the death decree that Satan places upon God's people. But not only that, Moses came to an experience in Exodus 32 where God's people were so wicked, the children of Israel were so wicked that God said, I will destroy this people and make of you a great nation. Now, how many human beings would say, hey, that sounds pretty good? Uh, we can get rid of all the people that get on my nerves. And we will have a group of people that will come from my line. So clearly they're going to be awesome. They're going to be good people. They're not going to be annoying like the people I have to deal with. Yeah, let, I'll, I'll take you up on that, God. And that was in Exodus 32.10 where God said that. But that's not what Moses said. Moses goes on to say, God, if you destroy your people... Your name will be profaned among the heathen. They're going to say, God led his people out into the wilderness so he could destroy them. And Moses says in Exodus 32, please forgive their sin. But if you don't, blot my name out of the book of life. Because God, I don't care about my own salvation. I don't care about getting a great nation. That's not what I'm here on this earth for. I'm here on this earth because I care about the honor, the glory, the vindication of your name, God. That's why I live on this earth, is to see your name honored, to see your name glorified, to see your name vindicated. And then he says in Exodus 33, show me your glory. And God says, I will, okay. I'll make all my goodness and mercy and graciousness pass before you. Moses, I will show you my glory. I will show you my character because you understand it. You understand that I was just testing you. I didn't want to destroy that, the nation of Israel. I wanted to give you an opportunity to see what my character is really like. And so because Moses was concerned about the vindication of God's name, God showed him his glory. And God's last day people, they will be concerned about the vindication of God's name, and they will give glory to his name in the hour of his judgment. And then the song of the Lamb. Wow. How could it be that we as God's last day people would be able to sing the song of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Amen. That just seems almost unbelievably outlandish. How could it be that we could sing the song of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ, that we could sing of His experience? You know, Jesus... When he was here on this earth, his purpose was to bring glory to the name of his Father. And in John chapter 17, he says, Father, the hour has come. And he says, I have glorified your name here in the earth. And you know, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. As we behold the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, we see him as our sin-pardoning Savior, hanging on the cross, dying as if we, you insert yourself, as if you were the only person in the whole entire world that he died for. You behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And you learn to see him as the author and the finisher of your faith. You know, it would only make sense 
that a fit man that leads the scapegoat out into the wilderness would know something about running a race. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. People who run marathons generally are fit. If you're not, boy, you're going to have a, a really rough day. And let me tell you a brief story. About two and a half years ago, I had the privilege of climbing a very famous mountain in the United States. It's called Half Dome in Yosemite. How many of you have ever heard of Half Dome in Yosemite? You may not have. It's, I wouldn't necessarily expect that here in Trinidad. But Half Dome is a very famous, you, if you've never seen it, go to the internet, go to Google, go to images, and type in Half Dome. And you'll see a very beautiful site of, a, of an amazing mountain structure in the tall mountains of California. And it really does look like a half dome. And it's a very um, popular mountain to climb because you can hike all the way up to the base of the mountain and then just the last 400 feet you climb up with cables. You don't need any climbing gear. You can just hike with hiking shoes. And, and so I wanted to do that before I moved away from California. It's a brutal hike if you're not in shape. And I was not in shape. I was not a fit man physically that day. We started the hike off at a quarter to four in the morning. And it took us a good 10 hours to get eight miles. It's an eight mile hike to the top. And you gain 4,800 feet in elevation. And if I hadn't been 32 years old at the time, I probably wouldn't have been able to make it. My friend who was a little younger than me, um, he handled the hike a little bit better, but he wasn't in a whole lot better shape than I was. The and, and then the point I'm going to make is this. There were people who were older than me who were in good physical shape who started the hike two or three hours after me who passed me up. <laughs> that shouldn't have happened, right? And the point I'm trying to make is some of us think that we can just wait till the last days and we're going to face a brutal hike, but because we kind of know some things about what the Bible says, we'll somehow just barely be able to scrape by and make it. But we should not be, as God's people, living in the last days of earth's history, having people join the message after us and flying by us on the trail of heaven. We as God's people shouldn't be at a point where we are still eating on the milk of the word and we don't understand the deeper truths of scripture. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, Paul says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, but seeing ye are dull of hearing, you have need that you have someone teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. And then he says, everyone who uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness. Listen, we are God's last day people entrusted with the last message of warning and mercy to a lost and dying world. And we shouldn't be trying to figure out for the first time what the sanctuary message is about, what the three angels messages are about, what our judgment hour message is. Now, if you're new to the church, that's fine. But if you've been in the church for 5, 10, 15 or 20 years, you should be well versed in these things. This should not be news to you. But God in his mercy is still waiting to have a fit group of people who will lead the scapegoat out into the wilderness. But let me say something. God's not going to wait forever. You might decide to keep playing games with the devil, and in the meantime, a whole group of people will come together and will gain that experience, and Jesus will move ahead without you, and he does not want that to happen. Now is the, t the day that we should be putting our efforts 
through surrender to Jesus Christ, to follow him completely so that we will have a clear understanding of this message so that we really can sing the song of the Lamb who is the author and finisher of our faith who will help us to run with patience the race that is set before us so that we can get to that finish line and as fit men and women lead Satan out into the land of forgetfulness. We should be demonstrations of Jesus Christ. If we sing the song of the Lamb, we will be a demonstration of his character. Let me read to you a quote from Christ's Object Lessons, page 415, which you're probably well familiar with. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God! The last rays of merciful light the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. If we're going to be able to tell the people of this world, behold your God, behold the revelation of the character of his love, we must have learned to sing the song of the Lamb. Because if we're not singing the song of the lamb, chances are we're going to be singing the song of the dragon. And people are going to say, oh, you teach that the seventh day is the Sabbath? Well, how come you treat me like you're the meanest person on earth? I don't want to know what your Sabbath message is all about. Well, okay, so you're telling me that I need to give up my meat? Well, how come you're 200 pounds overweight and you're mean to your kids and your wife and this and that? Our message will not have power if people do not see Jesus in us. When we proclaim, behold your God, they should be able to see Jesus in our church. Amen. They should be able to see the revelation of the care of his character of love in our lives. And as I close here, I just want to make an appeal. To this church here, Jesus is our great high priest, seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. But a day is coming when he is going to come out of that sanctuary and put on the garments of vengeance, and he will be coming back a second time, as Hebrews 9 verse 28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. He is coming back a second time for those who are looking for him. And he is going to be coming very soon. Time cannot linger much longer. And I believe that God has placed this Patna church in this community to be used by God to give this last message of mercy and warning to a lost and dying world. And this is my last opportunity to speak to you. Jesus wants to have a group of people who will sing his song. And he wants you to sing that song. And there are many of us here today who know that there are things in our lives that are keeping us from singing that song. They're keeping us from being fit physically, mentally, and spiritually. We realize that if, if probation were to close today and Jesus were to place the sins of God's people on the hand of Satan, the scapegoat, we wouldn't be in any shape to be part of the work to lead Satan out into the land of forgetfulness. And God in his mercy is waiting until he has a group of people that are ready. But he might just move ahead if we aren't ready. And he wants you today to be part of that experience. If you want to be part of that experience, and you're saying, by this decision, this may not be everyone, there are sins in my life. There are lifestyle choices that I have made. There is food that I'm eating. There's things that I'm watching. There's things that I'm doing in the way that I treat my spouse or my children that clearly reflects that I have not yet learned to sing the song of the Lamb. And I want Jesus to help me. Because I have a great high priest who has passed into the heavens, who was tempted in all points, like as we are yet without sin. And he wants us to come boldly to his throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And he wants you to come forward today to receive that help. If you want that help, I would invite you to come forward 
at this time. This is a call for us to wake up to the time that we are living in, to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ fully so that he can do a special work through us in the last days. God in his great mercy continues to draw us to repentance. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And we look forward to the day when we will be reunited in the kingdom of heaven. Amen. I may not see many or most of you again until that day when we stand on the sea of glass, but I'll look forward to that day. And I want to see each one of you there. Amen. Why don't we have a word of prayer? Father in heaven, you see all those who have come forward. We have felt your presence with us today. We thank you that you are, you are our great high priest, that Jesus is our high priest seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, that he ever lives to make intercession for us, and that he will save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. Lord, we've come today because we have things in our lives that are preventing you from filling us with your full outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We know what the message is in so many ways, and perhaps at other times we willfully neglect to study what is truth for our time. Lord, forgive us. Help us to hear your voice speaking to us. May we surrender our lives to you so that you will show us how to live and that your spirit, your character, your grace will shine forth through our lives. Lord, we're tired of professing a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. May we profess godliness and demonstrate it through your grace and power. Lord, I pray for this congregation, the Patna Church, in a special way. I thank you that you have placed this group in this community. And Lord, I pray that it will be a shining light to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And while I am sad that today is a, a parting of the ways on this earth, it's not a parting of the ways in our hearts and minds. And we look forward to the day when we will be re reunited on that sea of glass. And I pray that each one of us here will have that privilege of singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. May we learn to be primarily concerned about bringing honor and glory to your name. Amen. Go with us now. This is my prayer in the blessed name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you and may God be with you. And we will miss each one of you, but I know that God will be with you here. Amen.